That expected order from the Biden administration that federal employees must be vaccinated or else, can they do it legally? For what the implications might be, we turn to the managing partner of the law firm Tully Rinky, Dan Meyer. Dan, good to have you on. Glad to be here. And what are the legalities? Are there constitutional issues? I mean, can a federal agency, and I guess for that matter, a contracting company, can they compel people to have vaccines? So while there can be compulsion to have a vaccine, it's all about how it's done and the process the government follows. And as we've seen over the past year, uh, there's been a uh, real tendency to aim after you've already fired the shot. So the critical question is, what have they done to set up the review process when people come back to them and say, uh, I, I have not gotten the vaccine and I still want to work? And that's where the legalities will decide the question. And it will be done uh, perhaps at a constitutional level, but I think most of the cases will revolve around the Rehabilitation Act of 1973 and the provisions that inform and tell the federal supervisors and managers that they cannot discriminate against people for a disability in the workplace. So the key things for employees to understand is they need to document they don't have the uh, vaccination and they uh, have some condition that will make them vulnerable to the virus. So advanced planning is going to be important for employees so they can best position themselves to not lose their job because of this executive order. Well, how can not having vaccination when it's so readily available then be construed or argued as a disability? Is that, is that what you meant? So, so the, the, the definition of disability includes things that prevent you from uh, being able to uh, undertake a, a major life task. The people who are going to be most protected are people with pre-existing conditions. So they're going to need to, uh, those people need to document immediately if they haven't documented. They need to check in with their physician. There's a variety of pre-existing conditions. Age, I think, would be one that falls into it. So employees over a certain age, they may have concerns about getting the team. They may have concerns about how they'll react when exposed to people uh, who have the virus. So that documentation is one that fits well. People who are chronically overweight, uh, that's a pre-existing condition that um, I think uh, would, would be helpful to document this stage. So the harder task is when an employee doesn't have one of the comfortable, easy precondition statuses that fits within the, the laws that exist. Uh, so if somebody has a religious exemption, and for instance, they're now uh, given uh, special accommodation for holy days, et cetera. That uh, documentation is very helpful because they can then move forward and say, well, they have a religious exemption for the vaccination as well. If somebody has a pre-existing condition that medically is a problem for either a vaccination or exposure to the virus, then they can ask for reasonable accommodations such as teleworking and such, which would not put them in the workplace. So all of that pre-planning needs to go forward for the employees in order for them to effectively adjudicate their status with their employer with a vaccine mandate in place. The harder category of employee to protect are going to be those uh, who don't have one of those badges. They're not under a union contract and they have procedures that help them. Uh, so the you know physically fit uh, person who is a-religious, who is white male under age 45, is going to be very hard to protect. But there are strategies that they can employ as well, especially uh, if they're able to start documenting their their medical concerns now. But it's all going to be about pre-planning for the employees. If they 
uh, want to resist the executive order, they're going to have to go out and actually start laying the groundwork for the defense of their job. We're speaking with Dan Meyer, managing partner of the law firm Tully Rinky. On the other hand, they could just get a vaccine because it's not hard. I'm trying to understand how you could claim a disability because you did not get a vaccine when the vaccine is readily available. What would your objection to the vaccine be, I guess, just to play devil's advocate? Well, so so for many of the people who make the case that they don't want the vaccine, they make the case that the vaccine was approved under expedited circumstances. They don't trust the research. Uh, they don't have a trusted mentor within their community, a pastor who's saying it's a good thing to do or family members are saying it's a good thing to do. So so they will have uh, a reasonable belief in the unsafe nature of the vaccine, um, or they probably won't be bringing this claim already. I mean, you know, part of the reason is the people bringing the claim do not trust the vaccine. And, um, you know, a federal supervisor or manager would have to make a fact finding saying that, well, you can trust the vaccine, your distrust is unwarranted, so I'm going to terminate you for that. That then becomes a central question um, when this gets taken up by whatever decision maker would then take it up above the federal supervisor or manager. It could be the Merit Systems Protection Board, it could be the Equal uh, Employment Opportunity Commission, it could be any variety of places where these complaints would go. If the FDA were to move more expeditiously to give it permanent imprimatur, saying that this is now approved fully as any other drug, it seems like that could eliminate a lot of the resistance people have to having a vaccine. Well, FDA evidence may reduce the number of sort of causes of action that somebody might have. I uh, wouldn't get rid of a religious exemption argument. Uh, that wouldn't really help at all. But there may be some options that are not available if FDA acts promptly. And the administration was expected to also say, well, if you don't have the vaccine, then you can come to work, but you have to have screening periodically or quite frequently. Does that mitigate the issue that people might have, that uh, that they would then therefore not need to make a claim because they'd be checked regularly for the infection itself. Those mitigation procedures by employers uh, typically are approved. Okay, so that's a good sort of uh, proactive uh, positioning on the part of uh, uh, federal agency attorneys to to best situate their bosses um, as they move forward with this. I, I don't think that it is going to assist with changing people's minds about the vaccine. I mean, this is a central, you're, you're trying to get to a legal means to solve a problem about messaging, which has failed with a significant portion of the American population over the last 18 months, okay? So there's distrust of the government, and you have to go back to the 1990s for the roots of that. So we had distrust of the government coming all the way through this pandemic. At a time when we needed the trust that we had during the Cold War, we don't have it. And so everybody is then uh, drawing their advice from their local networks, and there are a lot of local networks that are opposed to the federal government, and that's the fight that federal managers and supervisors are engaged in. So the more mitigating things they can do in the workplace with monitoring, and and that is is great, um, but it's still not getting around the political issue, which is the failure of the messaging. And and this is that's not bipartisan sort of assessment on my part. It's not a criticism of the president or his predecessor. It's just that there's been a failure of messaging for a portion of the American population. It's a minority, 30 to 40 percent, but that's a pretty significant block of people. I guess the question is whether that 30 or 40 percent translates over to the federal workforce, which is a specialized group. In my experience in representing federal employees, I find them no different than the 
average data slice of the American population. That would not have been the case uh, in my father's generation, say 50 years ago. Uh, but um, the federal workforce, I think, is of the same stripe as the rest of the American people. Dan Meyer is managing partner at the law firm Tully Rinke. Thanks so much. Thank you. And anytime you need help, just give us a call. All right. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual, uh, afloat commands. Uh, The first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, And then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, It's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin and what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, 
when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, 
and they they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.